Dr. Kinlaw spent the last 20 years of his life studying personhood. Dr. Kinlaw sought to understand the nature of personhood and its relationship to the Incarnation and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We hope this discussion on personhood enlarges your spiritual understanding and theological perspective. Uh, I want to try something uh, even more risky today. I want to talk some theology. But that ought to be something that's important to you and to me because the way you think determines what you're going to preach and it's going to determine how you're going to minister and how you're going to live. And I'm convinced that most of us have a very limited understanding of the greatness of the gospel of Christ and the greatness of the work of God. Anybody here know what a juice harp is? Did you ever hear anybody try to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on a juice harp? Do you know, I've decided that most of my preaching has been sort of a juice harp edition of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. There just, happen, <laughs> there just happen to be dimensions of the symphony that you can't get on a juice harp. Uh, you need a whole orchestra to do it. And I believe that's the way the gospel is, and most of us have a very limited understanding of what it is. The doctrine of creation is as important as the doctrine of redemption, and sometimes we've forgotten that, because it's the creation that to be redeemed, and the doctrine of redemption fits the doctrine of creation. And uh, I guess I got into some of that because of my time in Old Testament. But uh, I think oftentimes that we have had a very unbiblical view of the creation that the flesh was something we needed to get away from, that the material was to be diminished in value, and that Christians were these spiritual people. But when God made man, he made him with a spirit within him, but he put him in flesh. And the same root word is behind the word carnal as is behind the word incarnation. And the same root word is behind the word incarnate son of God as is in the word carnality. And carnal is simply a very good thing not being used for the purpose it was supposed to be used for. And uh, we need to think in terms of the doctrine of, of creation as well as the doctrine of redemption. Now, one of the things in connection with that is we need to understand who the people are that we preach to out there every Sunday. So we need as clear an understanding of what a human being is as we do of who God is and what he's like. Because if we don't, the fit will not be correct. One of the things that has astounded me is that Christianity, without any question, in spite of the way most of the world thinks that knows just a little about Christianity, has the highest view of the importance of a single human being, one of the human race, male or female, if I use the word man, I'm talking about both. If uh, it, the, the biblical position, biblical theology has the highest view of a person, human person of any religion in the world. You get it, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament. One of the Psalms plays it up incredibly. And the New Testament has, with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has caused us to miss what was originally said. 
You will remember in the eighth Psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You who set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now there are some translations and the New Testament quoting the Septuagint, the Greek translation, says out of the mouth of babes and sucklings you have ordained praise. But the Hebrew word there is the Hebrew word oz and it means force or strength. And the context is one in which you're going to need strength. And what is the context? Because God is going to deal with his enemies. He's going to silence the enemy and the avenger. And how does he do it? He doesn't do it the way the world thinks he should do it. He does it with the weakness of a babe. And then he uses the word suckling. And let me ask you, what is more helpless than a babe, a suckling babe? You cannot get a symbol of weakness greater than that. But do you know that's the kind of person that God takes to put to flight his enemies and to still silence the avenger? Now, uh, you know, how was he to undo all the damage that was done in the world by, by sin and death and hell and all the legions that go with it? The answer is in Bethlehem's manger. And obeyed. Not even God can save from heaven. He had to become one of us. And it's in that man, Christ Jesus, that the redemption occurred. Divine, of course. Don't get any, don't mishear me on that. But it was only when God became one of us that the redemption took place. What a premium that places upon humanity. Now notice what he continues to say. When I consider your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? You read the reports on uh, the Hubble, you know, telescope. And now how much bigger is the creation than we thought it was before? Uh, somebody told me that uh, that thing could pick up a firefly 8,000 miles away. And so it can see. And we're, they, we're seeing things... We're seeing that the creation is infinitely bigger, much bigger than we ever expected. And somewhere I was reading the other day that a plane, you get in a plane at, at eight or 10,000 feet and you can't even see a, a human being down here. We've all disappeared. Well, you know that when you get out there, you don't have to get out very far and all they're, they're not even going to see the world, the earth. But the interesting thing is, he says, now, what is a person like you or me? Now, the Hebrew word here for man is the word enosh. And there are three major words used in the Old Testament for man. One of them is the word Adam, Adam. One of them is the word ish, which speaks of us individually. And the word enosh is a word which implies fragility and weakness. And we are weak. It doesn't take much to destroy you or me. You will remember Pascal said, what is man? He is a thinking reed. All it takes is a little pressure and you can break him. In fact, Pascal said, you can take a few drops of water and place it in the right place and you can wipe him out. He said, but uh, if the whole universe were to gang up on one of us and wipe us out, 
we'd still be greater than the whole universe because we'd know we were being wiped out. Now, uh, we're, there's a weakness and a fragility in us. But what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? You've made him a little lower than, and the Hebrew says God. Now, I know that this is quoted in the New Testament because Paul used the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the writer of the book of Hebrews. So the New Testament writers quote the Bible they had, and that said, what is man that you're mindful of him? Son of man that you visit him, you've made him a little lower than the angels. But do you know the New Testament says that we will judge the angels? And the New Testament says that we will sit on Christ's throne, which is the eternal throne of judgment with him, and we will be in a superior position to the angels. Now, there is no question in terms of the Old Testament, if you take the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, take the Psalms, there is no question but in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, if we get away from the quotations from the Greek Old translation of the Old Testament, there is no argument but that the greatest thing that God ever created was a human being. We are the only ones for whom God himself has died. At least as far as our knowledge is concerned. And if you want to know how much one human being is worth, you've got to look at Calvary to know what one human being is worth. If we had time, we could play with some interesting things. You will notice he says, what is man that you remember him? The Hebrew word zakar, to remember, is a very theological word. You know, there's a difference between remembering in the sense that, yeah, I thought about that kid that hit me in the third grade, and I got hurt when I was a kid, just went through fighting. It's another thing when your father remembers you in his will, isn't it? The word is a loaded word theologically. And you and I know it because we are told to remember this is my body which is broken for you, this is my blood which is shed for you. What is man that God remembers us like that? And then that he visits him, that he wants, uh, wants association, he wants fellowship with us. I have the privilege of being the associate of the greatest, the most important person that exists. But every morning of the world, the eternal God comes and sits and talks with me. With me. With, and he's ready to do that with every human being. Now, how important are human beings? You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. I'm sure the author of this psalm had Genesis 1 and 2 in his hand. And if not in his hands, he knew it well. Because when you read Genesis 1 and 2, what you find is that the last thing God made was a human being. And when he made him, he was the climax of the creation. And when he made him, he was to rule over all the creation. You remember that tantalizing passage where the Pharisees were taunting Jesus because they said, you're claiming to be, you talk like God, you're equal to God. And he said, well, don't you say all ye are gods and quoted the passage from the Septuagint Psalm. Is it Psalm 82? Well, uh, as far as the creation story is concerned, 
What God is to us, we are to his creation. And we're made to rule it. We are to master it. It was inevitable that man would go to the moon. It's inevitable that man keep moving to conquer everything because that is the position that God gave to man to be the crowning point of his creation and we're to be the guardians of his creation the way God is the guardian of us. We are in that role. Now, what is man that God is mindful of him or the son of man that he visits him? Christianity makes a human being bigger and more important than any other religion in the world. Yet it's interesting that Christianity recognizes our limitations. I remember finding that text in Jeremiah 10, 23, where the prophet is coming to the close of a discussion of idolatry, where we make gods to replace the, the true God. And then he says, I know, O Yahweh, that Adam's way, man's way, is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his step. Personal name of God is you. Jeremiah is talking of bottom line statement. I know, O Yahweh, that Adam, that's the word used, mankind, generically, all of us, males and females, young and old, rich and poor, anywhere you got a human being, I know that Adam's way is not in himself. It is not in, another word for man is used, the Hebrew word ish, which is the individual. It is not in Dennis Kinlaw who walks to direct his steps. Now that to direct his steps, or who walks, is a, is a Semiticism for goal-orientedness. It is not in the individual who walks to direct his steps. And do you know what you can know about any human being you ever meet? He's goal-oriented. Have you ever met a human being who enjoyed dead-end streets? Be interesting how much blood pressure has been produced over dead-end streets, wouldn't it? Because we hate them. Why? Because we're going somewhere. And you get on a dead-end street and you can't get there. You've wasted time. And you don't like that. Now, we are goal-oriented. And he says, I know, Yahweh, that man's way is not in himself. It is not in the individual who walks to direct his steps. There's no compass in us. Stick a guy out in the woods. Let it get dark. And he'll go in a circle. You put a person in a place where he doesn't have some external compass point, and he'll go in a circle. There's no horizon in us. You get a person in equilibrium, and he can't tell you which way's up and which way's down. There is no... If you do not have an external frame of reference... A human being will go raving crazy. Did you know that? What do you call these experiments in where they put a person in a place of sensory deprivation, put a person in water, get him where he cannot feel anything externally? I had a scientist not long ago say to me, it doesn't take but a few minutes to, put, to run a human being totally raving crazy. We cannot survive without something beyond ourselves. Now, you know, when I heard that at first, I thought, ah, that's good theology. We're made for God. We're made for somebody beside ourselves. And we need him. Like the Boy Scout needs his compass. Like the sailor needs the stars. He's sailing at night. Or like the 
pilot of the plane needs his horizon to let him know which way is up and down. We need that external frame of reference. We need God. That's what it means to be a creature. As I wrestled with that, I decided there are four things that are characteristic of a person. The one thing you know when you bump into one of us is that we're not self-originating. There's not one of us who decided to exist on his own. Every one of us, his origin began inside somebody else. And not only did our origin begin inside somebody else, but the, but the decision that was made for us to exist was made by more than one person. It was made by two other persons. So every time you see one person, you know there are two more or that guy wouldn't be here. So we're not self-originating. This runs counter to all of the psychology of, you know, find yourself, the answer's in you. Our origin isn't in us. Our sustenance isn't in us. You have to eat, that's outside coming in. You have to drink, that's something from beyond you coming to you. And 18 times a minute your body tells you that your life is not inside you. You draw it from outside you. There's no life in us except what we draw from beyond us. So I said, you know, that's good theology. God made us, and he made us for himself, and we need him. And you got the parable in our being. I noticed that we're not self-explanatory. Now, those of you who have heard me do this, be patient with me for a few minutes. I'm going, I hope, a little farther than you've heard me go before. At least I'm going farther than I thought I would go until two weeks ago. Uh, we're not self-explanatory. Isn't it interesting that there's no such thing as a typical human being? You have to have two to get, a tip, to get a typical one because we come in two editions. If you had somebody come in from outer space and pick one of us and carry us back to some remote planet and say, let's dissect him and see what makes him tick, they wouldn't have the vaguest notion because we come in a male and a female edition and you've got to have both to produce one. We're not self-explanatory. Well, I got all that down and then I got hit the, hit the, the load. I said, ah, we're not self-fulfilling either. And if I'm not self-originating, and if I'm not self-sustaining, and if I'm not self-explanatory, why should I be shocked if I'm not self-fulfilling? Now, when you live on a college campus, you get sort of aware of that because you watch the freshman boys look at the freshman girls. And you watch that over 18 years and you begin to find that to be a human being, most of us, we suddenly get enamored with somebody beyond us. And it's interesting we come in those two different editions. Now, but the truth is the hardest thing that you and I have to believe because of our sinfulness and our fallenness and the hardest thing your audience in your church, your congregation in your church has to believe is to believe that there's not some way they can be satisfied within themselves. If they could just get everything they wanted and have it all their way, if they could get their way, they would be satisfied. I want to say something to you. That is a violation of the nature of the human being. There's not a soul in your congregations who's ever going to be satisfied if he gets everything he wants. Because when he gets it all, he's going to say, wait a minute, is this all? Now, uh, George Herbert wrote a poem, and 
I left it in my room, in which he tells about how God created us. And when he created us, he loved us and said, now what can I give? I'll shower with him my gifts. So he gave him, gave to us all these priceless gifts put into our lives, beauty and put into our lives, truth and mind, intelligence and all these. And finally he said, but I held one thing back. I held back rest. Because if I had given him rest, he would have been satisfied with my gifts. And he would have forgotten about me. And so God gave us all the gifts in his hands except rest. You'll remember Augustine said, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. I thought, ah, that's George Herbert. He's right on target. Augustine right on target. Exactly what Jeremiah said. I know Yahweh, man's way is not in himself. It is not in the individual who walks to direct his steps. We're made for one beyond us. We're made for God. That's what it means to be a creature. But do you know I got to reading the Gospel of John? Now see if you follow me here. I got to reading about Jesus in relation to his father. And do you know what he said? He said, my father has life in himself and he's given to me to have life in myself. I thought, wait a minute, that's too much like me. Do you know what he's called? He's called the only begotten son. But did you know that you could be translated the only being begotten son? And so did you know the second person of the blessed trinity's umbilical cord's never been cut? And he's still drawing his existence out of his father. Now that's interesting what it does to our male-female stuff. But anyway, that's what the text says. He's still drawing his existence out of his father. The second person of the blessed trinity doesn't have existence in himself. And the third person of the blessed trinity, according to the creeds, proceeds from both the father and the son. So I thought, well, that's interesting. That first characteristic of a person is not just of a creature. It's also a characteristic of the creator <laughs> because the son is the one who created us. Now, the second thing, not self-sustaining. Then suddenly I thought, for heaven's sakes, do you know in the Gospel of John it says Jesus said, I can do nothing of myself? I can only do what I see my Father do? My Father shows me all that He does. And when He shows me all that He does, then I can do what He does. So did you know that... Uh, he is not only not self-originating, he is not self-sustaining. And then add to that this, this passage from the Gospel of John. You will remember he says, you don't know who I am, do you? The reason you don't know who I am is because you don't know my father. And if you knew my father, you'd know who I am. Because did you know you can't understand a son unless you understand a father? Because the son necessitates a father. Now I'm jamming all this together. But you see the three care, first three characteristics that I had 
of us as creatures, the gospel of John describes them as attributable to the second person of the blessed trinity. He's not self-originating, he's not self-sustaining, and he's not self-explanatory. You've got to have the Father and the Spirit to explain. And then I thought, could it be that he himself is not self-fulfilling? And then, let me say, 20 texts from the Gospel of John came to mind. Do you know how many times he said, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father? I'm not here on my own. Wasn't my choice. In the Greek, there's a very fascinating expression. Ta, uh, pa, pimpsos, me, pater, which translated means the sending me father. You know that Greek mixes the words up. So when Jesus talks about his father, who is he? The sending me father. Well, that's an ambassadorial role in a sense. And do you know when somebody introduces the guy and he says he's the ambassador from Chad, you know there's a government behind him in Chad. He's not on his own. You can't explain him apart from the government he came from. And he says, I'm not here on my own. Forty times in the Gospel of John, the term sent is used. The word apostello, the theological word, the other word, ordinary word, pempo. But he was a sent one. He said, do you know what my delight is? My delight is to lay down my life for my sheep. I dare you to read through the Gospel of John with this. In, you know where Christ gets his fulfillment? Sacrificing himself to do the Father's will for us. Do you know what I've decided is the only fulfilled person in the world? Is the person who's giving his life away. And that that is a reflex of the doctrine of the Trinity because you see you've got those three persons in the Trinity that are giving their lives to each other. And the incredible thing is God has invited us to join the crowd. And how do you join the crowd? You join it by letting him set you free to where you can live for something beyond yourself, someone beyond yourself. And do you know what I found? Every time I find somebody who has really come to that point, there's incredible satisfaction inside them and fulfillment. Let me tell you a, a story, or maybe a couple if I can. I was in Florida last winter, and I was with my brother-in-law, who's a member of Christian Businessmen's uh, group. And so he said to me, we're going to a, Christmas, a Christian Businessmen's breakfast this morning. So I said, okay. So we sat down, and they introduced the speaker, former vice president of Ford Motor Company. He stood up to speak, and it was obvious, you know, he was not a preacher. He spoke a little more. He didn't speak with the ease with which you and I speak, but he spoke very well. I suspect he was 62, 65, somewhere in there. Vice President of Ford Motor Company, he said, yes, I know Lee Iacocca. He's a personal friend. He said, I may not agree with everything he does or says, but he said he's a personal friend. I love him. You got any questions about him, ask me afterwards. I want to talk about something else today. He said, when I was 26 years of age, my wife and I lived in Detroit. I worked for Ford Motor Company and intended to spend the rest of my life working for Ford Motor Company. 
he said, uh, when I was 26, he said, we had a missionary conference in our church. Never had one before. He said, there was a missionary couple that the pastor asked us to keep in our home. So we wanted to be good church people, so we said, fine. So they put this young couple, relatively young couple in our home, said uh, they were missionaries, Methodist missionaries in Taiwan. He was a district superintendent. He said, in the three days, we came to love them. Now, one of the things I liked was I found out that it was an Asbury couple. <laughs> but anyway, he said, uh, we came to love them. So he said, on the third day, or at the end of the stay, he said, I sat down with them and told them what a joy it had been to have them in our home. And he said, I said, I really envy you, Bill. And he said, Joe, why under the sun would you envy me? Well, he said, you're a missionary. You have such an opportunity to influence the world. And Bill looked back at him and said, uh, Joe, how many people do you see a week? Oh, he said, see a week? Yeah. He said, well, 250, 300 people. Well, he said, in any good week, I see from 12 to 18 people. And he said, a bunch of them speak a dialect of Chinese I don't understand, and the dialect I speak they don't understand. I don't see why you would ever envy me. He said, you know, uh, Joe, it's not where you are that counts, it's what you do with where you are. And Joe said, uh, you mean a guy could live for Ford Motor, uh, Ford Motor Company and count for Christ? And Bill said, yeah, if that's where God wants you. So he said, I thought, live for Ford Motor Company and live for Christ, count for Christ. He said, that sort of intrigued me. He said, I thought I'd give it a whirl. You don't live but once. So he said, I started. Now he said, I'm retired. Didn't succeed as well as I would have liked, but he said, I had some great moments. He said, when they made me a vice president the first time and I came home and told my wife, her first question was, do I get an automobile? She was tickled to death. Vice president's wives all get their own automobile. He said, uh, I, bought I bought an hour of TV time in Detroit on a TV station, paid 12,000 bucks of my own money for the time. He said, you see, in, in Detroit, a vice president is a public figure, a vice president of Ford Motor Company. And he said, I offered to answer telephone, any question anybody had about Ford Motor Company and particularly about my division. He said, uh, for 57 minutes, I got question after question after question, and he said it was a delightful hour. He said, after 57 minutes, the question slowed down, and the red light on the camera came on. He said, I knew I had three minutes. So he said, I knew my time had come, and I had to take it. I looked straight into the camera and said, folks, it's been a great privilege to talk with you today. Great fun. But he said, before we close, there's something I need to say to you. Ford Motor Company is not the biggest thing in my life. said, you know, Ford Motor Company, as wonderful it is, is not big enough to satisfy a certain dimension in my spirit. You see, God made us too big to be satisfied with anything like that. I want to give it my best, but he's not big enough for that. And he said, I've found what can fill that dimension down in there that a thing as wonderful as Ford Motor Company can't fill. And if you'd like to ask me any questions about it, here's my secretary's telephone number. And if you'll tell her what you're calling about, she'll put you through directly to me. He said, do you know I got to witness to 250 people over the telephone about Jesus Christ? 
And he said, I got to lead one guy to Christ at my desk in Ford Motor Company. Well, he said, the day came and they promoted me, made me a bigger vice president, greater responsibility. He said, uh, we were in a meeting in Boston with all the Ford dealers in the United States. He said, you know, thousands of them. He said, I was on the program. He said, I had the slot nobody else wanted. It was the last one on the day. He said, the president was on the program. The vice, the chairman of the board was on the program. He said, my subject was Ford Motor Company, the dealer, and the customer. So he said, I thought about that. He said, when I went to the podium, he said, I took my black Bible with me. And he said, I said, now, my subject is the Ford Motor Company and the customer. He said, you know, there are two attitudes you can take toward the customer. You can see the customer as an opportunity to promote the interests of Ford Motor Company or your dealership. Or else, he said, you can see your, your customer as a fellow human being whom you have an opportunity to serve. He said, I just want you to know that I go for the second option. He said, you know, in fact, there's an old book that's got a bit of wisdom in it. And he turned to Ecclesiastes 3. He said, when I picked it up, there was a, you could hear the hush through the crowd. And he said, I read that passage which JFK used in his inauguration. There's a time to sow and a time to reap and a time this and a time for that. Got down to the end, there's a time to hate and there's a time to love. He said, I closed my Bible and said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the time's come for Ford Motor Company to love. And he said, I walked off. If I heard him correctly, he said, 12 minutes later, I was sitting in the studio and they were scraping the paint off me they'd put on for TV. And he said, a guy came rushing in and said, Joe, Joe, get out here fast. Not a soul's left. They're all on their feet and they're still clapping. <laughs> he said, do you know, two years later, I bumped into one of those guys, a dealer. And he looked at me and said, Joe, when I heard you make that speech in Boston, I knew you were the biggest idiot on the face of the earth. Crazy as a loon. But he said, you know, that idea got stuck. And I couldn't shake it. It just ricocheted in my head. And the thought came, do you think that fool could be right? <laughs> and he said, the more I thought about it, he said, the thought, you know, you don't live but once, why not try? He said, two years ago, we made a million. Last year, we made two. And this year, it looks like we're going to make five. Do you know, Joe, that crazy idea of yours works? Well, he said, they came to me and said, uh, there are better things ahead for you, Joe. We're going to make you president of Ford Motor Company. He said, that didn't hurt my ego at all. So he said, I had my eyes set on that and was working away. He said, one day had been a real rough day. He said, I came on, uh, he said, uh, I came home and he said, I looked at Phyllis, my wife, and said, honey, I need a few minutes alone. I need a little time to pray. He said, I went in my study and got down before the Lord and said, Phyllis told me when I came out, the weave of the carpet was on my forehead. He said, uh, I got down before the Lord and I said, Lord, there's something wrong. He said, that's right. He said, there's something really wrong. The Lord said, I know. He said, well, Lord, what's wrong? The Lord said, well, you're in the wrong business. He said, wrong business? The Lord said, yep, you're in the wrong business. He said, what do you mean, Lord? The Lord said, I don't want you in Ford Motor Company anymore. 
He said, you don't want me in Ford Motor Company anymore? He said, no, I don't want you in Ford Motor Company anymore. And Joe said, Lord, do you know what it would cost me to leave now? It cost me 10 to $20 million to leave now. And the Lord said, yeah, so what? He said, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Joe, you have a special gift for interpersonal relations. I want you in hospice work. I want you helping people to die. So he said, I got up and went out for supper. And Phyllis said, well, uh, Joe, what's up? Now, when I tell this, all I can think about, do you know what it says about Abraham when God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac? The next line in Hebrew is, I'll never forget it, Vayash came. Do you know what it means? And he arose early in the morning. He didn't wait till the second day. Now, it doesn't tell you what happened during the middle of the night. But when morning came, he was ready to obey. Joe walks out of his study and looks at his wife and says, we're leaving Ford Motor Company. And she said, do I get to keep my automobile? <laughs> yeah, he said, you can keep your automobile. She said, well, what are we going to do? He says, we're going to help people die. We're going into hospice work. And he said, do you know something? It took me 18 months to get out of Ford Motor Company. He said, I went to my boss, the fellow over me, and told him I was leaving. He said, Joe, you're crazy as a loon. You can't leave Ford Motor Company. He said, you're headed for the presidency. He said, I'm leaving. He said, do you know what it would cost you? Yeah, he said, I know what it would cost me. He said, he was sure I was just having a real bad day, and so he never told his boss. So he said, I found myself at a banquet with the top brass of Ford Motor Company. He said, the guy sitting next to me was belly aching, and I looked at him and said, I understand. That's why I'm glad I'm going to be out of this rat race before too long. He said, what'd you say? He said, I'm glad I'm going to be out of this rat race before too long. He said, Joe, what do you mean? Well, he said, didn't Lou tell you I'm leaving the company? He said, you're what? He said, I'm leaving the company. He said, Joe, you can't leave the company. You're crazy. Well, he said, I'm leaving. He said, does the president know? He said, I don't know, that's not, my that's not my problem, that's Lou's problem. He said, he got up and went to the head table and told the president, the president got up and went out and made a phone call, and at the end of the banquet, he came to me and insisted my wife and me fly back home with him, and we had four hours in his airplane, and they put us through the water Chinese water torture treatment for four hours, informing us we couldn't leave Ford Motor Company. But he said, we did. And he said, do you know, since we've left Ford Motor Company, I've helped 18 people die, two of them with AIDS, one of them with Lou Gehrig's disease. He said, now I want to tell you, if I were you, I'd pray, the Lord let me go some other way than Lou Gehrig's disease. But he said, uh, do you know what a joy it's been? He said, do you know I'm exactly where I belong to be? I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. 
I could not be more fulfilled than I am doing what I'm doing now because I'm doing what God made me to do. Are you? The guy sitting next to me was the top executive in a shipping company. I watched him when he had to register at the end. You know, they make you register at the end, and there's a block there, and they give you a chance to pray the sinner's prayer, and that guy checked the block that he'd prayed the sinner's prayer when he handed his slip in. You know, it was interesting to watch Joe Carter, one of the freest mortals I've ever met, and one of the most fulfilled. Do you know everybody's made to live that way? Who are the most beautiful women? Who are the two most beautiful women you've ever seen? One of them's a girl getting married, and the other one is mother, her baby just put in her arms. I don't care what a mother's gone through. You put a baby in her arms and she glows. We are made to live for somebody else. Now, I don't believe... You see, I believe that's what Wesley was talking about when he was talking about perfect love. You come to the place where you are able to sacrifice yourself for others and for Christ. Now, I've got uh, one more thing I, I have to say. I believe the church is supposed to lay that kind of uh, challenge before people. And we've watered it down and watered it down to people sort of thumb their nose at the church. Because you see, everybody in his intuition knows he's made for something bigger than we challenge him to. Did you hear me on that? The people who sit in our audiences know that they were made for something bigger than we challenge them to. I got acquainted with a guy in this country, and this is my conclusion. By the name of Bruce Wilkinson. I'd be interested in how many people know Bruce Wilkinson. Anybody know Bruce Wilkinson? He's the fellow who started Walk Through the Bible. Graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. His purpose was to help people get acquainted with the Bible, and it was very effective. His program going very well. 1992, there were some educators in the education department of the Soviet Union that became interested in the ethical, moral condition of the country, and they felt ethics ought to be taught in the public school. That's interesting when you've had atheism for 70 years. So they said, uh, do you suppose we could get some people in the United States to help us teach ethics, Christian ethics, in Russian public schools? So they invited some people from Christian educational uh, in, uh, programs in the United States to come to Moscow and to talk with them. I knew a fellow who'd just become president of OMS International. He had been in Korea, and he was in that transition moment still in Korea. And a friend of mine who knew about this called him and said, you ought to be a party to that. You ought to go. So he went. And so my friend J.B. and his wife found themselves in the company of Bruce Wilkinson, who also went. And as they saw the opportunity, the Russian government said to us, we have 12,000 public schools in the, United, in, in the Soviet Union, and if you will give us 12,000 teachers, we'll put one in every public school in the Soviet Union to teach Christian ethics. 
There are no school buses in Russia. So when you get a Christian witness in every public school in Russia, you've got a Christian witness within walking distance of everybody in, so in the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union. So he said, you know, we were staggered. And he said, we talked about how phenomenal it was. A whole segment of the world that's been closed to the gospel asking for Christian witnesses in the public schools. So he said, all I could think was, what a door. And then he said, I thought, where will you ever get the people? And then he said, this is what I thought. Would God open a door if the people weren't there somewhere? He said, you know, I decided the people must be there. Maybe they don't know they belong to go, but there are people somewhere that can fill that need or God wouldn't let the need open up. So he said, I'm sweating on that. He said, you know, I've never been real concerned about missions. He said, in my senior class at Dallas, I think there was one guy at the podium and came down and stood and looked us all in the eye and said, will you? He said, I know what you're saying. You're saying, Bruce, I own a business I'm responsible for. He said, well, Matthew sold his. Why can't you? And I shuddered. And he just stood and said, will you? He got still as dead. I could hear my heart pounding in my chest. And suddenly he looked at the crowd and said, is your heart beating as fast as mine is? And he just waited. After what seemed an eternity, a 24-year-old boy in the back got up and came forward when he got to Bruce. Bruce stuck out his hand and said to him, repeat after me, unless God supernaturally stops me, I'm going to Russia to witness for Christ. And the guy sort of quietly shook his hand and said, unless God supernaturally stops me, I'm going to Russia. Do you know there are a thousand or more people doing that today? I was going to be in his part of the country and I called him and said, could we get together? He said, I'm sorry, but I'm headed for Soviet Russia tomorrow to visit my 60-some-year-old mother who's a widow, and she's teaching in one of those Russian schools. Do you know they've got an 81-year-old guy over there who's one of the most successful ones they've got? When that first guy came forward, there were, it was younger people, finally Bruce turned to the crowd and said, where are the gray heads? Gray hair doesn't stop you. What do you think God let you retire for? And the gray head started. Do you know 30 people responded to that invitation? It takes $20,000 to keep one for a year. Do you know over $20 million has been given? Easiest money for missions that have been raised in the United States probably in its history. God's opened the door. Do you know that's the kind of day we live in? I want to know what you're challenging your people to be or to do. We've got a world to win. We've got cities right where we are to win. And I believe people are looking for a challenge that's bigger than what we're presenting to them. 
I have a friend who was working with international students and an Indian boy came in to see him one night and said, what do I have to do to become a Christian? He said, you have to give your whole life to Christ and let him do with it what, you please, what he pleases. He said, really? He said, yeah, that's what you have to do. Well, he said, I don't know whether I could do that or not. Well, he said, if you ever can, let me know. <laughs> and the Indian student walked out sort of downcast. At six o'clock the next morning, there was a banging on my friend's door. <laughs> and when he opened the door, there was that Indian student bedraggled looking, saying, I'm ready. <laughs> Do you know I think he's a normal human being? Because we're made. You see, that's the image of God. One thing, and I'm really through. I dare you to read the 15th chapter of, of uh, 1 Corinthians. You see, I always thought that God expected out of me something that he didn't expect out of himself because I'm a creature and he's God. But did you know that the end of human history is every knee bows to Jesus and every tongue confesses that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father? And then do you know what Jesus does? He renders up the kingdom to the Father from whence it came. And then do you know what he does eternally? He is subordinate to the Father. Did you hear that? God subordinate. And I'm made in his image. And I try to build my little kingdom and keep it. But the one in whose image I'm made is giving his whole kingdom to the Father and bending the knee to his father. There's nothing like that in there. Anywhere else in the thought processes of the world. But that's the reason Christians, real Christians are different from anybody else. And down in everybody's gut, that's what he wants to be, whoever he is. I think we ought to give the world, the church, the challenge that Christ gave it when he just simply said, follow me. And he said, where are you going? That's not your business. That means you got to turn loose and let go. Bless you. It's been fun to be with you.